Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Well, hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer, and on today's show, I have a special guest, my business partner, Paul Rickard, who was the CEO of arguably Australia's greatest digital-disrupting business ever. That name is Comsec. This business rocked the stockbroking industry and showed many future uh, digital disruptors just how to do it. Then we catch up with the CEO of HCF, Sheena Jack, to see how a uh, health insurance business has coped with this big threat called the coronavirus. And then we learn how a business with a brand disaster on its hands can turn it all around with Tony Nichols and David Latham of Good Talent. But without any further ado, let's catch up with my old mate, Paul Rickard. Thanks for coming on the program. Thanks, Peter. What was it like, Paul, in those days, stockbroking? Because the people listening now have, in a sense, benefited from the fact that you brought to the table... Comsec, and then there's other ones that have followed since then. I think Rivkin in those days came in around the same time as you. But tell us what did it look like for someone who wanted to invest on the stock market? Yeah, Peter, look, it was um, look, the average Joe, if I can use that word, didn't have a stockbroker. Mm. And uh, stockbroker was re- access to a stockbroker was really confined to what I describe as the financially elite. Mm. And uh, that's because it had a was very very expensive to use, and most stockbrokers didn't think that the you know the the man or the woman in the street could actually utilise someone like them. So when we started, uh, you know, brokerage in those days was somewhere between one percent and two and a half percent per trade, with a minimum of about between seventy five and one hundred and fifty dollars. So if you want, and there's a lot of money in those days. That was a lot of money. So this is this is back in nineteen ninety five. Mm. So if you wanted to use a stockbroker, you'd probably be paying at least one hundred and twenty five dollars in brokerage mm. as a minimum. As a minimum. Yep. And today, you know, you've got brokers who are less than ten dollars. So mm. this is in nineteen ninety five. We're now in two thousand twenty. So twenty five years later, mm. the price has come down by. About ninety five percent. Okay, was um, was technology um, a part of the reason why you and CBA yeah, uh, it, thought it could be done? It absolutely was, Peter. And I, and I guess the, the last thing, just in terms of um, why it was not just expensive, but the, you mentioned Rene Rifkin, and a lot of listeners would probably remember Rene with the. The big fat cigar and, yeah. and the double-breasted suit, and I think he a did a flamboyant man. A flamboyant man, and I think he also had a pretty good. He had a red Lamborghini or something. Yeah, and that was pretty much the image of the stockbroker. So yeah. it, again, I think it was actually <laughs> a yellow Bentley with a <laughs> rollback. It's one of his books. He was going across the Harbour Bridge with a big cigar. Yeah, you're right. So again, it was pretty hard for someone just to bring up a stockbroker because you just perceived this person at the other end of the phone would be. Mm. Yeah, what do I know? They're just going to, they're not going to talk to me. I'm an idiot, you know, because it's going to be there, you know, looking, you know, like uh, they're out of some, you yeah. know, 
They'll think you're a plonker. <laughs> They'll think you're a plonker. <laughs> right. So technology was a big part. Uh, and when we started, Peter, actually we didn't know much about the internet. In fact, we actually started with a very traditional phone-based model. Mm. And fax machines? And fax machines. That was but, the new technology. Yeah, that was the new technology. Yeah. But we did realise that the, um, the industry uh, was charging a fee for a transaction and really what it was providing was a service. In other words, it was providing a service about what to buy and sell, but it charged by the transaction. And mm. by definition, if you charge by the transaction, you have an incentive to try to get people to deal. Yeah. So, okay. so the advice wasn't you don't you shouldn't buy that or you shouldn't sell that or you shouldn't do any don't do anything. <laughs> the advice was yes, always do this. <laughs> yes, and always buy it. Because, yes, always because sell. Because the broker sell. didn't get paid unless there was a transaction. Okay. And so what we did was uh, was basically disaggregate those services and say, okay, you want to get advice, you pay for it. You want to just do a transaction, mm. we'll just charge you for the transaction. We're mm. not going to tell you to do it. Mm. And that was a big change for the industry. And largely that's really what survived because you've now got the industry very much in, you know, you've got your non-advice brokers and there are, and there's a handful of, of what we call full service brokers who provide advice and portfolio management, but people realise they've got to pay a much higher fee mm. for that. And sometimes they're going to say, Peter, don't do it. You don't need to trade. You mm. don't need to invest. Whereas in the old days it was all heavily biased <laughs> to make you do a transaction. Uh, so... Uh, and you were a stockbroker at no, one stage? I, well, I became a stockbroker. I yeah. became a member of the Australian Stock Exchange. I had yeah. to pass a, um, an exam, Peter. Right. Right. I had to know all about partnerships and yeah. all the rules that have been but set did you, up. But didn't you end up getting an award <laughs> from the Stockbroking Hall of Fame? Yeah, I, I got an award. Some years later, I got booed onto the stage. <laughs> <and> booed <laughs> <off>. <laughs> because you threatened, in a sense, yeah. their, their livelihood, didn't you? I, I did. And look, a lot of the industry changed. But the industry eventually adapted too because it realised that it, you can't – if you're charging for a transaction, then you're – as we saw in, in the whole financial advice industry where people incentivised to, to make – clients do something like change insurance yep, policy change yeah. insurance policies or whatever it is you get the bad sort of behavior and the stock market was the same there was a lot of bad behavior mm. because the incentives were misaligned right what was the the cost of the first trade that you yeah, so to we, we, we started with 75 dollars mm. that was cheap as i said the minimum at the time was about 125 dollars mm. uh, and when we started online we our first trades were at 29 dollars that's a minimum mm. and mm. What we the decision we made at the time was that um, there had to be a because re- internet was still new there had to be a reason for people to use it mm. and so we had a simple proposition and this is still pretty much the case today even in retailing online was cheaper than offline yeah okay yeah. and that's still largely the case you look at the retailing you look at at all the successful online businesses Amazon they've made it cheaper to buy online than to go to a shop mm. and unless you had the had that price um, proposition, people weren't going to use it. And that's the, the whole in, online model today. Okay. How unusual was it for a bank to do stockbroking services in those days? Look, it was un- very unusual in terms of what we did. Um, it, it hadn't been unusual because up to that point, each of the major banks had owned a stockbroker, but they'd all failed. In other words, they'd all bought a stockbroker, which was the traditional, you know, Rene mm-hmm. Rivkin, you know, the traditional broker with the cigar and the Lamborghini and yeah. the, the double-breasted suit, and worked out that didn't cut it with sort of bankers wearing cardigans, right? Yeah. Yeah. And there was a huge cultural clash between the broker they owned mm. 
and the banks. Mm. And uh, each of the major banks had bought a broker and each had failed mm. and sold it again within about five years. Mm. Interesting. And, and um, you know... Has CBA owned one? Yeah, CBA had owned one too, probably by accident. CBA was very sleepy in those days. Mm. Yeah. And, um, it was a, a, a government. It was government, yeah. yeah. And it had owned a broker through it – it ended up with S, um, State Bank of Victoria by accident. Mm. It sort of been forced to buy State Bank of Victoria. And they'd owned a broker called BBY, which I think might still be around today. Yeah, yeah um, too. And so it eventually got rid of that and then we started Comsec. But, okay. But it started from scratch and started with a, di- a model different from every other, what every other bank had done. Okay. So David Murray was the CEO in mm-hmm. those days. Um, who took the, the idea to, to Murray? Was it you or ca- my, no, uh, my, my cats? Yeah, uh, my cats. Yeah, well, see, my cats had come from uh, Morgan Stanley and been hired to run the investment bank, okay. the institutional bank, right? Yeah. Okay. And my, so he, he wasn't a cardigan wearer. He like. wasn't a cardigan wearer. No, he was. He was new breed, but he okay. couldn't understand how you could want to be an investment bank without having a stockbroker. Yeah. Right. But what Mike sort of recognised was that. Look, if you're going to start, there are there are 85 stockbrokers in the market. So mm. what's num- number 86 going to do? Mm. You had to be different from everybody else. Yep. And so to get stockbroking going, you had to have a different proposition. And he said, "Look, let's let's tap the retail market. Let's, let's use, do something different. Let's get a whole lot of customers, and then we'll sort of go up the, t- the train a bit and be a bit more, inst- a bit like an institutional broker. Well, you'll use a leverage point. So that was his motive, mm. but uh, none of us really sort of saw it developing the way it did. All right. it so, more so, by accident. Yeah, right? so, so I know a lot of bankers. I know you pretty well. Um, often bankers will, will say, like, you know, computer says no. Was well, a lot of people saying, well, it's worth a try, but... We don't think we really. Oh yeah, we, it was just a pimple. I mean, it a was. Uh, yeah. I think the bank's initial capital. I don't think it's ever put any more in. Was two and a half million dollars. Yeah, that's two, for two, Yeah, two point five million dollars. Yeah, uh, was it the only capital it's ever put into it? Yeah. Pretty measly. Pretty measly, right? And uh, but David Murray uh, is yeah, very measly. Yeah. And <laughs> no expectations. And for David, it was just a bit of a plaything. You know, yeah. it was. It was. Um, it, expectations were. Almost none. Okay. You know? So so was it the case then that all the potential people who could have been the first CEO were lined up and they said, who wants to be the CEO? And everyone took one step back and you were left in the front? Something like that, Petty. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. Look, you put that very nicely. You made me feel, as you do, you've really raised my... Yeah. Eternal self esteem. Okay, that. We'll but about, you're right. It was. Yeah, <laughs> Heather, all these great it, it employees. We'll get Rickard to do it, this. It, it wasn't a hard fought position. Like yeah. it was, well, who wants to do it a bit? Oh, okay, I'll have a go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, and, and, and then he supports you with, you once told me, like a, like a packet of pencils, a fax machine, yeah, and paper. No, he did. Look, he, look, to his credit, David David helped at the initial promotion. Mm. And, and what also happened was that um, we sort of came across the internet and he backed us when we needed it and we got into, you know, we got a whole lot of customers yeah. and, you know, we could have become a bit of an embarrassment mm. because we couldn't serve our customers. We had too many people mm. and he backed and said, well, this is really interesting. Yeah. Um, so when, when we needed support, he was there yeah. and he also, to his credit, let it grow outside the bank. So um, it's very, these days it's also, everything's so controlled. We were able to to do everything independently of the bank. Yeah, well, it's funny. I, I, I was quite brave. Yeah, and I, it reminds me of what um, Alan Moss said to me many years ago when I interviewed him when he was the boss of um, Macquarie Bank. And I said to him, what do you think is the secret for success? He said, well, we encourage people to be entrepreneurial in this business, like a, a, a small business, but they get 
what most small businesses haven't got. We give them money, we give them infrastructure and expertise, and that means it's a good chance to succeed. Well, I guess you had that kind of backup as well. Yeah, and we also had uh, access. To, we had the most important thing, which was the brand. Yeah. So we, we started with a very – if you look at the – if you're a Comsec client, you look at the contract notes carefully, you'll see the word Commonwealth Securities Limited. Mm. That's what we were called. Mm. And we sort of became Comsec by accident because mm. that was the our website address because Commonwealth Securities was too long. Long. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but it's been a pretty cool name. Yeah, and the public sort of named us. But they did know, and um, this was really important, that we had the logo there and we were part of the Commonwealth Bank and that gave, you know, it gave sort of credibility and trust. Yeah. And that's an important thing in financial services. So... Without that, that was the biggest thing the bank provided was, you know, we, we knew who you were, we could trust that you probably were going to do what you yeah. said, and if something went wrong, we'd get our money back yeah. or something. Right? In a sense, that, that was a brand competitive edge that you yeah. had, didn't you? Because you, you were competing against names to the normal person, they wouldn't know, they wouldn't have known a lot of stockbrokers, but you were a well-known well yep. And we also had, at the time, uh, and the biggest share register list, shareholder list, Commonwealth Bank had, had the biggest shareholder mm. by number of shareholders, and we were able to access that, and so we were able to get a, you know, not target Commonwealth Bank shareholders to become mm. customers yep. and, and give them something. So that was also important. Uh, clearly, you know, the, the fast growth of, of um, Comsec was helped by the internet. But, Paul, do you think you were also helped by the fact that this was an, an era of deregulation yep. and it was also an era of education? And I, I made a reference uh, in a, an earlier interview, I think I was on TV today, where People like myself and Ross Greenwood, David Kosh, Paul Clithrow, all got a start in the media big time. And the media sort of lapped up money and all that sort of stuff. So it was, it was like an idea whose time had come, really, hadn't yeah, it? Yeah, look, look, there are, you may, I think, as anyone will tell you in business, you know, um, you always need luck. Mm. Mm. And you don't, and you need timing, and, and those sort of things you have very little control over. And, yep. and we were lucky in the sense, though, that A, it was an era of, of a lot of privatisations, so so a lot of investors were coming into the market. Mm. So we had things NRMA. like NRMA, Quanta, uh, Telstra, Qantas, Telstra. Mm. That really helped. Uh, we haven't had those things since, but we did have a lot of first-time investors come in with yeah. shares. Uh, so that was really really fortuitous. We we saw that at the time. It was one of the reasons mm. we set it up that way. But that continued. Secondly, it was a bull market. Now, retail investors are always a bit more active, more buyers, yep. and then, you know, markets going the right way rather than the wrong way, so that mm. helped. Mm. Uh, and then I think thirdly, Peter, um, the, um, you know, the, you're right, there was just a general increasing awareness in financial literacy, mm. um, which was important. And then I, but I do think, so they're all the things that we were really lucky with. We, we did, I think, make, as I said, two really important business decisions um, up front. And, and along the way, which were are still really integral to its success. Uh, one is that uh, we actually set up a real, we looked up, before we did any open for business, we did a lot of work on our back end processes. Right. And this was a paper intensive industry at the time, you know, you mm. might find that hard to believe. Mm. But we basically said, we're just going to trade electronically and service clients electronically, and we're going to make sure we have the best processes. So although we're the lowest, have lower brokerage, we can have the lowest cost as well. Mm. And so that was a, real, a lot of work that did to sort of make sure that the delivery of the transaction yep. was done at, at lowest cost. So mm. we had a sustainable advantage. And then secondly around, uh, I mentioned the utility. The, 
when we were started in the, in the net in 95, 96, 97, most web pages were very boring, very dull. They were mm. static. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing happened. Mm. And apart from a price, we also realised that we needed to give people a reason to use the internet. And so we made a, a rather, I think, the, probably the most important decision, which was to give away the price data. So the ASX, when you see you, you log on now to Comsec or Navtrade mm. or your broker, whoever it is, and you can look at the live price, mm. you know, mm. And that actually, there's a royalty that the ASX gets for providing that data. It's their IP, and, I guess. And in those days, most people were using, who were doing that stuff used delayed prices, 20 minutes or half an hour behind the market. Yeah. Uh, and we said, we're going to give people live prices and not charge them. Mm. And so they had a reason automatically go to the website. There was information they could get on the website that they couldn't get on a telephone or anywhere else. They had a reason to go yeah. for it. Yeah. Then they sort of, you know, had a reason, had a price reason to trade on it, which was cheaper than over the phone, and that's what led to its growth. So it was really sort of recognizing that if you give want people to use something, you've got to give them a reason to do it. Mm. And we gave them reason to use it and adopt it. Yeah. And that's important. And that certainly would have had its competitive yep. advantage. Yeah, and, and that's why it grew so much. So, so they were really important decisions. Well, you and I, when we an analyze companies and funds and whatever, you know, we've, we've learned that some of the best companies, the best funds, they go looking for businesses with growing moats. That's what you had for a long time. The, your moat around you, there was no one who really came. I know they came from overseas, but they just didn't seem to have the same kind of connection with the public that you guys had. Yeah, and I think look, that was um, the brand was really important. I think we 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 want to be the lowest cost, so therefore we delivered. It wasn't always the lowest price, but we were right. We were down there, yeah. and we remained competitive. And uh, you know, we probably worked harder than I think some of our overseas competitors who thought yeah. this was going to be a picnic. Uh, now, well, one of the things. I hated about Comsec, and I didn't know you then, so I would have hated you if I'd known you. Was that Comsec gave away the services of mm. people like uh, J uh, Craig James and people like that, and all of a sudden they ended up on. I was Channel Ten News was the first. Channel one. Ten News, I think, was the, the first, first one yep, to do yep. it. Yeah. And, I thought, and and then, and then uh, I remember I was working for Mix One Hundred Six Point Five, and uh, the. Um, the general manager came in and said, look, Switz, we'd like to have your spot sponsored. And I said, yeah, by whom? And he said, Rene Rivkin. <laughs> and I said, I know Rene, and I, and, and, but I just don't want to, my brand name to be associated with Rene because of, yeah, he's, well, as, as you described him, he was um, flamboyant. Anyway, so the end result was that I effectively lost my gig at Mix because I refused to take payment because they were – competing against you. Rene would have seen you doing it, so they'll always get Switzer to represent me. And so you became, and I think Bruce Jakes, he lost his mm -hmm. job at 2UE. You killed a lot of people's jobs, mm. Paul. So I, I, th I thought very hard about that at the time, Peter. <laughs> I said, yeah, I'm did. going to get this Peter Switzer guy <laughs> yeah. the best way I know how. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, yeah. For, well, fortunately, um, Qantas came along and I did talking business for 10 years. But then, even more fortunate, you brought him in our business. <laughs> so I got even with you. But, but, Paul, in many ways, that was also a very big innovation. Now, clearly, you would have been spending money on that station, but the, the sweetener was for Comsec to be inside news. And people watched news in those days. Yeah, and, and it, I guess um, it, it was a big innovation and it was also partly trying to deal with um, a little bit around what we perceived as one of the weaknesses of the no advice model. Mm. That is, you know, well, what do people know about what they're investing in? Yep. And so we felt that we had to be 
very uh, take a very strong role in things like education mm. about how to trade, how does the market, what are the concepts, what's the data, mm. and also get out there to the media in the sense of being sort of you know also take on a strong educational promotional role about what's going on in the share market mm. to to sort of deal with that sort of well people don't know what to do so it and that was it was a very deliberate strategy to be seen as 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 the voice a bit of the market and of and of the people yeah. that doesn't sound that sounds a bit paternalistic yeah. but um you know, oh, well, and, that's, and that's why we thought we could get dirt better than one piece switzer yes yeah <laughs> You were wrong, of course, but anyone who loves the work of Tom Petrosky and Craig James, I can thank poor Rick. They're, they're still there today. You can still get them on. Uh, I listen to uh, Tom every morning on uh, on news radio, and uh, I go to the screen every day. There's three reports a day. They're still doing it, right? Yeah, they're exactly across right. Sky. They're exactly across lots right. of other. It was a good yep. uh, competitive yep. advantage idea. And Paul and Tom's been there from the beginning, right? Yeah, but people <laughs> yes. like Julia Lee were working yeah. with you as yeah. well. Julia Lee was another mm. one of our our finds. Yep. Yeah. So Paul, on that point. Uh, the people you work with must have been pretty good because n- no one runs a business without great people. Yeah, Peter, I mean, we had a great team. And um, to be honest, we did a lot of things outside the bank. which were at, So we employed our own team, our own conditions, mm. which we wouldn't happen these days. It'd all be controlled. Yeah. Uh, and put a lot of emphasis on um, a young team, young, vibrant. Um, well, you were yeah. young too, weren't I you? I was fairly young at the time, yeah. yeah. A younger, uh, yeah, look, a good team, great, great, and most of them, as you can see, I can point to a lot of people uh, in the industry today or other parts of the whole investment industry that worked for me at Comsec. Yeah, so, um, yeah, and, that, yeah. and that's always a, and a great I, feather in your ha- cap as well. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I learned that from uh, John Beggs um, sort of gave me that advice, and you know, John was very involved too, and he mm. had a very simple philosophy. He said if you've got the A team or the B team, one A grader is better than two B graders every day of the week. And um, so he was, uh, he just said, you always employ the best. And um, pretty think, good advice. And that's some pretty good advice. And John was pretty responsible for, for, for Matt Common as, as I had a lot of influence there too. Yeah. So, you know, that was, um, that was recognized. And uh, I think that's a really good lesson to um, in business to, uh, to take to believe in, yeah. To believe in, yeah. Uh, and and before, before we wrap it up, Paul, there's a bit of controversy around about millennials being the investors in this rally. Mm. And the point you made that the, the kind of investor when you started was a, a more older, well-heeled kind of person. Um, do, do you think that the, the whole internet age has, has set up the millennials to be very interested in this kind of investment activity? I think that, Peter, that they are a lot more financially aware than the millennials of my generation, whatever they were called, or Gen yeah. X or Gen well, something. Well, we were baby or boomers or waiting boomers. to happen, weren't we? I don't know, baby boomers waiting to happen. Yeah. So I think overall they're uh, more financially literate. I think also that whereas we probably had a lot more emphasis on the home, mm. um, they've got a lot more emphasis. They, they see the home as a more distant thing, mm. mainly because it's probably expensive. Mm-hmm. To, in a relative sense, it's a lot more expensive despite interest rates coming down. Yep. So I think shares are a little more attractive. And I think also there's just a bit more interest in, you know, what, what they're consuming, um, particularly, you know, the brands that they use every day in, in, uh, in, in Facebook or Amazon or Apple. They know that there are shares there, that they mm. know that there are the equivalents here in Australia. Um, and I think that's part of it too. Okay, last question. Um, because, you know, this was a startup, albeit you had the support of the bank. But you know, you must have felt like you were the entrepreneur 
who was running this operation, who everyone would have said, you're a complete dope if you failed. What was the, the, the big lesson that you felt that, like, mm-hmm. what kept you awake at night and then what did, you, what did you learn that helped you solve that thing that was a big worry to you? Okay, so what kept me awake at night once we were up and we really had made something was mm. just how you scale mm. because we could not meet demand. Oh, yeah. Um, and so the lesson from that was that if you need to scale, you've got to go really hard um, and, uh, uh, you know, Obviously, if you plan for scaling, it's a lot easier. Yeah. But but usually, success you don't when you get it, you don't always expect it, right? <laughs> and you didn't expect it. <laughs> you didn't did expect you? it, right? Mm. So uh, if you're going to scale, go go really aggressively, um, and don't don't worry about the cost because yeah. if customers want to use your services, you're winning, right? Mm. <laughs> um, and so the cost almost becomes irrelevant. Yeah, but right? you ha- you have one other one thing in your favour. You could go to the bank and there's a chance that they would say yes yeah, to you. Uh, they probably, I think to David Murray's credit, he made me scale hard and I probably would have because yeah. I was a bit more conservative, you know, and you just yeah, yeah. He, he was more worried about, you know, the number of customers screaming and oh, yeah. about yeah. they couldn't get through on the telephone or yeah. couldn't get through on the online or something. Yeah. And we did have a lot of those problems. So, uh, you know, uh, scale hard. I think the other lesson, Peter, is we weren't successful from day one mm. and we had our failures too. We actually laid off staff within 12 months of starting. Mm. Okay. Uh, and we actually tried a whole lot of other products which would, turned out were ahead of themselves, right? So we were the first to do effectively um, insurance online, mm. which we killed because, you know, what you could now do is go and compare buy an insurance policy online. We were doing that in the mid-late 90s. Mm. We put a lot of money into that. We killed it. Couldn't get enough traction. Mm. We also basically had the first sort of like – Exchange traded type fund, yeah. which we also killed. Mm. So um, well ahead of the ETFs of yeah. today and stuff. Um, and um, so we were r- r- innovative in some other products. But mm. we also, I think, one of the lessons out of that is um, is that I think if you start a new activity, I think you've got to rec- you've got to you've got to be hard on things. So if it mm. doesn't work, you've got to exit caref- uh, quickly. quickly. Yeah. yeah, don't 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 try to back a loser. Mm. Um, it mm. won't work. So the sooner you recognise it's, it's not working, yeah. and the sooner you stop it, and yeah. then you can refocus on yeah. new things, yeah. on other ideas. Yeah. That's an important business. So, and, and I guess many many of the businesses that failed in the dot com bust were great business and great ideas whose whose time had not mm. come. And I guess you know, in the case of Amazon, that that, that its time has really come, and businesses like them failed in the dot com bust. They did indeed, and so uh, if you've got to uh, recognise your bad ideas, get rid of them, um, and just admit it was a mistake. Everyone's going to make mistakes, um, so move on. Mm. And then thirdly, I think uh, I still see this today. It's not the idea that that makes money. It's the ideas are helpful, and the execution's helpful. It's still going to be where the customers are going to buy things, mm, and right. so you've got to relate. You know, the best products aren't always the best thing, things that people buy. Yeah. Or, or or services, so you've got to always think of more about how's why is someone going to buy it and um, how are you going to encourage that process as opposed to whether you've got the perfection of the product or the perfection in the marketing or the perfection in the technology, whatever it is. Mm, great insights, Paul Rickard, founding CEO of Comsec. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Peter.
Well, that was Paul Rickard. A great story, isn't it? And uh, certainly a, a business success story that uh, most people should uh, get to hear and learn from. And if you're looking for some good investment ideas from some of the best stock pickers in the country, take up our exclusive end of financial year Switzer Report offer. This includes a full year's subscription to the Switzer Report, along with a bonus free copy of my excellent book, Join the Rich Club. And I say that in all modesty. And our 2020 tax tip ebook, which all up cost you $397, there'd be a very good chance that a lot of it would be tax deductible if you end up paying tax on your investments or inside your self-managed super fund. So just think about that, uh, $397 for all those things, the report, the bonus-free book, and the 2020 tax tips ebook. So if you're interested, go to switzerreport.com.au slash subscribe. I'm talking to Sheena Jack, the CEO of HCF, at a time when, when you think about it, we are being dominated by a medical condition or a medical threat, namely the coronavirus or the COVID-19 virus. But thanks for joining us on the program, Sheena. Oh, pleasure, Peter. Thanks for having me. Now, how long have you been in the job and were you ever expecting to deal with something like this when you took the job? (laughs) <laughs> so I've been in the job for about three years and uh, absolutely fair to say that uh, this was never really in our thinking, even though we do lots of crisis management planning. Uh, we didn't really think, and I certainly didn't think, that this would be something that uh, we would have been experiencing for real, that's for sure. Mm. Apart from the fact that you would have, I guess, done some calculations once it hit, what kind of impact it was going to have on, you know, your business for, for people claiming, uh, and unfortunately the, the the level of claims must be really small, given how well we've fought the virus. What has been the economic impact on HCF? Sure. So it's been uh, a very very challenging situation, really, to be able to work that out because there's been so much uncertainty and things have been literally changing on a day-by-day basis in terms of, uh, of just, uh, I guess, different projections around what might happen, different policy changes uh, that were occurring with government to try and address the situation. And so we've been just... Uh, literally sort of um, modelling on a continual basis as we as we get more and more information. Um, but even even as we sit here today, um, whatever we think today, I think um, all your listeners would understand that uh, the situation could be very, very different next week. Mm. Uh, so it is still very much on unfolding and uh, we don't have a crystal ball, unfortunately. Sheena, have you found so far that you've had a a proportion of your customers who've said, look, I'm on JobKeeper now. It's less than what I'm usually on. I just can't afford to pay my private uh, health insurance right now. Uh, Yes, absolutely. So um, I think that uh, there's been a very significant, not just a very significant health, Impact, and we've done lots of things as a business to support our members on the health impact side of things. 
but it's also had a very significant economic impact on well, on the economy, but also specifically for our members. So um, we've dealt with that in a couple of different ways. Um, I guess the first aspect from an economic point of view is that we just did uh, defer our rate increase for six months, which enabled us to be able to give some relief to all of our members. Um, but then it's very, um, uh, you know, it's very realistic um, to, you know, to understand that there are a lot of people that are doing it a lot tougher than others. So we've had very significant hardship support measures in place for those people that are doing it, doing it really tough. We set up a, um, a hardship helpline. Um, and we have premium waivers, but also the majority of our products actually also provide um, premium support for people that are made um, involuntarily unemployed or in a lot of cases we've seen in COVID, just people have been stood down. So we have provided significant levels of support for our members that are in those situations, and we've been... Uh, you're very conscious of ensuring that our members are aware that they should reach out to us if they need help. And at this point in time, we've been able to provide uh, support for more than 45,000 members that have contacted us. So uh, just uh, sort of shows the magnitude of, um, of difficulty that is out there in the community. So we're very, very proud to be able to help people, all our members, but also... Uh, doing specific things for those people that are really doing it a lot tougher mm. than others. So 45,000 over a total membership of? Um, that, that's out of our 1.6 million members. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, in, uh, I guess, percentage terms, it's relatively small, mm. um, which is a good thing because... Um, we certainly would be in a terrible situation from an economic point of view if we've got everybody that's been impacted. Um, but on, a, on an individual level, that's a huge number of, of calls to our call centre, mm. um, and uh, you know, and a lot of uh, a lot of discussion and support that's going on in order to be able to help that many people. It's a lot of people on an individual level. Yeah. Sheena, so but can I then assume from these numbers that if 45,000, in a sense, needed some kind of assistance to, to get through, the rest are basically still paying their premiums as they have in the past? That's correct. Mm. Which, which is, is kind of a, a good economic indicator, isn't it, that, you know, there is sufficient number of what I guess that we're talking about um, uh, 1.5 uh, um, Australians yes. who actually still are, are able to meet their arrival yeah, yes. that's that's you know it's, it's sort of like a silver lining inside a dark cloud um, so um, given all of this what has been the surprise issue? that you've had to deal with as a CEO of a, a really important organisation in people's lives? Um, I think the thing that has uh, challenged us in particular is 
it is the level of uncertainty that we've been dealing with. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we've been really in a situation where on a, on a day-by-day basis, things are changing uh, very dramatically. And, and so that has meant that just the responsiveness of the, of the whole organisation to be able to do whatever we can and whether that be, uh, you know, immediately responding to ensure that we could go out um, communicating to our members that, that all of that, our products would, would cover them for COVID if they were um, in an unfortunate situation to contract it. Mm. So just being able to take that off the table and make sure everybody was uh, had full confidence that, that they would be supported. Um, and then being able to react really quickly to uh, provide additional services and expanded services so that people could um, access more services through through telehealth to be able to get vital vital care online rather than in a face-to-face sense, um, adding a lot more support from a mental health perspective. There's been a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of media and focus on the challenge um, in particular through this process for people's, you know, the impact on people's mental health, mm. providing an expanded ranges of services for in-home care um, for people that have got chronic disease, people that have had surgery deferred, helping them with things like pain management, um and sort of prehabilitation services to help them manage until they are able to be able to access their their surgery and even things like our dental and uh, optical services, keeping them open, um, you know, in a very safe way to be able to manage, uh, you know, manage social distancing and uh, all of the, the safety measures, but to be able to keep our dental and eye care centres open to be able to provide emergency care for for members, mm-hmm. um, and then of course a, a lot of uh, you know, a lot of care has still gone on as well. Things that are non COVID related through all of this time, it's been it's been sort of dominating our thinking. But then of course through all of this, people still have babies, they have cardiac conditions, they have. Um, cancer treatment, so all of those things still go on. Um, so it's really meant, in terms of that sort of complexity, uh, it's just added a massive amount of complexity to the business that we keep everything going as usual, but be able to respond to all of these different requirements so that we could help our members in the best way possible. Mm. Well, one, one last one, um, Sheena, is that as I was listening to you there, um, uh, elective stuff has been put on the back burner, but of course, you know when people have heart attacks, you can't put that on the back burner. But I, but I know friends of mine who work in emergency were saying that because it's an unusual world we've been living, there's been less car accidents, there's been less football injuries and things like that. Have claims actually gone down over the period because we're living a, a, a more locked up life over the last you know three months? Um, certainly, I think that you know there is evidence about uh, yeah people are living a safer life, mm. so less accidents. Um, uh, that that's absolutely true, and certainly there has been a slowdown of claims, um, but it's been over a relatively short period of time yeah. because, of course, 
all of those restrictions are being eased so much more quickly than what we thought they would have been initially, which is a, a fantastic thing and goes to, uh, you know, what a fortunate position we are in Australia in terms of how we are managing the virus. We can be very, you know, very, very fortunate about that. So claims are starting to come back as, uh, you know, as um, all of the providers get back into gear to be servicing um, patients, um, getting surgery underway. Um, It's still at a slower level because they need to be very cautious of uh, of ensuring that, um, you know, there's additional measures that they need to make sure are in place still in terms of of all the infection controls that that does slow things down down a bit, and will mean that there's, it, you know, there will be a bit of a backlog. Um, but uh, of course, if you needed surgery before COVID hit, you're still going to need surgery afterwards. It doesn't. Um, won't have miraculously fixed itself in between, unfortunately. Yep, there will be catch-up for you. And I'm sure you'll look back at this period and say you became a better CEO after all those challenges. Oh, absolutely. There's nothing like a crisis to, uh, you know, really make uh, make you learn very quickly and you experience so many so many other you know, aspects and things that you wouldn't, you wouldn't normally experience in, uh, you know, if things are just going along normally. So uh, lots of learnings from that perspective. Sheena, thanks for joining us on the program. Oh, that's my pleasure, Peter. Thank you. And if you don't want the Switzer Report, I don't know why you wouldn't, and you just want the book, it has been drastically reduced because we have a sort of end of financial year caring, gift-giving kind of uh, way about us. It's uh, Join the Rich Club. $17.47 plus $6.95 for postage and handling. And if you want that, you just go to switzerstore.com.au. So in an age when lots of businesses are challenged by the kind of controversies that could damage their brand, uh, a business like Good Talent Media, well, they're in the business of actually helping companies sort out their brand challenges. I'm interviewing Tony Nichols and David Latham from Good Talent Media. Guys, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Peter. All right, so Tony, um, tell us about your background because you know you really, in a sense, um, have been a, a player in the media, and now you're—I won't say going to the dark side, like which some un, unfair people say—you're <laughs> <laughs> you're going to the helpful side in uh, in going into the side of actually helping companies understand how they need to manage their brand when the media comes a calling. Yeah, most certainly. I actually think this is the most exciting time of my career. In fact, it was really exciting to be at the ABC and it was great to cover big national and international stories. It was a privilege, really, to, to be a member of the fourth estate. But now we are on the other side. Some I understand call it the dark side. We, we actually get the privilege to choose who we play with and choose who we care for or help. Mm. And it's often, Peter, in crisis media situations. And from what we can see, from a PR perspective, crisis media management really is the new normal. And David, when you break it down, there really is four core components. Yeah, that's right. So look, we see in the future that uh, crisis media is going to be something that everyone has to have. It's going to be like the new insurance uh, for businesses and brands. That the reasons being that, Peter, are uh, pandemics. The World Health Organization has talked about more of them down the pipeline. 
in uh, the environment for 50 years, a third of the world would be in Saharan conditions. There'd be water wars and all sorts of awful stuff. The third is the uh, geopolitical situation with the rise of China and India and the, the decline economically of the US. And the fourth is digital surveillance. So this kind of 360-degree, um, I guess, look at all sorts of organisations, not just digital wars, which are destabilising, but for businesses, scrutiny of their brands. Mm. Yeah, and, and you're right. As I was listening to you, you know, the first three are kind of logical um, and you can think about the scenarios that can come out of you know, a, a, a pandemic and, and what it can do to various businesses. And I might come back to that in a moment because it clearly is topical. But where I think lots of businesses now are really vulnerable is in the digital uh, era. And I know from my own position, you know, I, 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 I write stuff for our website and I, all, all the other stuff I do, and then I put it on Twitter, and of course Twitter is made up of a whole lot of very aggressive people uh, who, who really um, can damage a corporation's brand if it's not managed effectively. Um, and, and I guess, you know, you, you must have had to deal with some companies that have tried to use the social media in a productive way, but it has backfired. Yeah, most certainly. Well, as we all know, happy clients tend to go away happily mm. and not say much, but it's the, it's the unhappy clients that can make a hell of a lot of noise. So I think we, we look at a client's digital footprint or digital legacy really, really seriously. And unfortunately, if you get some bad reviews or people are making heaps of bad noise about you on social, that footprint doesn't go away in a hurry. It's mm. page one, number one of Google for years and years and years. So there's a huge challenge for organisations to do anything about it. Now, we know as ex-journalists that the power of storytelling has not gone away in this disrupted uh, journalism cycle that we're in. In fact, the power of storytelling has never been more prominent. So we're encouraging a lot of clients when they find themselves in crisis media situations to be the ones to write the story in order to control the story. And, David, that really is where the rubber hits the road for our clients, but it's also it's a big paradigm shift for them, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, look, we, we talked about those big macro issues which will impact everyone, but, Peter, I guess there's these very specific issues which are endemic to some industries. We've dealt here with people facing raw commissions, uh, you know, sensitive industrial matters and, and all sorts of things. And the, the fact of the matter is if you're not prepared, you're going to be collected as a business, as a brand, because it only takes a couple of malicious reviews to really damage your reputation. If someone cared in front of their TV set, well, no one knows and no one cares about it. But now mm. um, things can catch fire and be, become very dangerous. So we want people to be aware in business that these threats loom and they're going to continue and, and uh, you know, this will be the new operating environment for business. Mm. So they really need to consider it. It's funny, Peter, how often we come across people and they say, oh, well, what an interesting occupation. Wow, that's fascinating. But we'll never need you. Mm. And then six months passes really quickly and they're in the paper yeah. or they're calling because they've got a problem. So uh, we really do think now that crisis media management is no different to Lindsay Fox getting insurance for his trucking fleet. I mean, uh, of all eras, mm. why wouldn't an organisation right now have some insurance in place in order to protect them if the worst was to happen? 
Okay, let's get through some scenarios because, you know, sometimes, you know, and you know yourself uh, after working in the media, Tony, sometimes it's always nice to bring a well-known person into a story because, you know, it's good for clickbait, it's good for intrigue, but sometimes that person's role in the story may well be unclear and it might not be, you know, certain that they've been uh, culpable in any kind of way, but still because journalists are journalists, they'll throw that person in and that person is linked to a, to a company or a brand. It, it, does the scenario change that sometimes it's worth taking on the media to, to clarify, to make sure there isn't a wrong impression left in the minds of the public? Or, or on the other hand, is it better sometimes just to ignore it and just say, well, it's, it's a one-off aberration. Not many people have I've seen it. Let's not give it oxygen. And you then have the role to make that decision on behalf of your client. Yeah, we certainly do. So we talk we talk about being proactive and reactive. But either way, you need to build a crisis media plan to decide if you will be proactive or reactive if these particular instances were to happen. It's interesting that you say that the media is interested in quick clickbait and intrigue. Uh, do I hear some cynicism there? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I've, I've worked in this my whole life. And I, I know myself at times if, yeah, I yeah. Could, if I could drag a well-known person in there and, yeah, it, it can easily happen. Oh, um, you're so right. I mean, the, the news cycle is it's tabloid, it's sensationalist, and it's titillating, and it, and it spins on clickbait and intrigue. I totally get it. So, therefore, there are certain sectors and certain individuals that are, that are more exposed to crisis media challenges as a result. But, David, we know also, in a similar vein, Peter, that if a client's in crisis, they shouldn't be in a crisis alone. So we really encourage them, if they were to communicate proactively and tell their narrative, which we advise a lot of clients to do, bring in key partners, bring in peak bodies, David. It, it, it's really, really important to, to diffuse, not be alone in a crisis. Yeah, look, and that's part of it, Peter, as well. Like mm-hmm. a, a, an audit of your organisation, see the threats that you think are coming down the pipeline, allows you to take proactive steps in advance to strike out the organisation, if you like, so you kind of anticipate them and you're not caught on your hind legs when something does arise. But mm. to, to your question about what you can do, look, I mean, it depends on the client what they would like to do. Sometimes you get something digital um, removed, but if you have a second bite, it might have to give a second run of the story. If it's not favourable, you, you may not do that. So it depends on each, each story situation, but... Um, you know, developing strong relationships with the media is key so that we have, you know, we're able to get through and try and shape the story or the introduction to a to a story if we get wind of something which is going to be unfavourable. Mm. And Peter, we, we always say to clients, you know, if, if you're not prepared to do the right thing in your organisation or the industry you're in, no, no crisis media manager, not even Jesus could help you. No one can really help you unless you're prepared to do the right thing. And it's, I find it so amusing. The wicked client sometimes comes up in the most precarious situations, somehow thinking we can, anyone could actually help when it's in fact impossible, really. So the best crisis media management mitigation you can do is in fact be ethical, have great values and, and, make, and do the right thing and make good decisions. Yeah. Have you ever uh, had a client who said, I've been, um, you know, my business has been really um, negatively criticised in the media and I want to sue. And if you had, if you had a client like that, what have you said to them? And I want, and I want to sue the press. Yeah. So it's, 
it's an interesting one. I think Doug's jumping in. Yeah. Oh, we, we do have someone in that situation, but, um, you know, we, we, we've got to make sure sometimes people are very emotional. We've got to make sure, you know, we advise caution and make sure they've got their stuff pulling a road. It's an expensive exercise, obviously, to, to go down that path. And, you know, sometimes the brand and the legal questions uh, at loggerheads, sometimes they, they um, dovetail, but sometimes it's better to look after the brand than to look after, make sure you've ticked off all the legal legalese and got that all lined up. Mm. Um, for example, you know, people are inclined, not, you know, lawyers to tell someone not to um, implicate themselves in, in problems and to be quiet. But when, you, when your story is out in the public domain, it's actually very important that you're not seen as being uncaring, that you couldn't, you know, your brand can be destroyed overnight on, on that basis. So, You've got to weigh up, you know, each each case is different because you don't have to weigh that up, the brand versus the legal um, requirements. And and Peter, you know know full well that uh, networks sit on file footage for years and and just roll it into story after story wherever it fits or relates. So um, in our our time on the dark side, so to speak, we've come across clients that have got their file footage running across the wrong stories, right? So Mm. defaming them, it's awful for their reputation. But we know, as externos who are connected, we can make the phone calls to the chiefs of staff and the news editors and say, hey, what are you doing? It's the wrong bloody pictures. Mm. Don't use them again. That doesn't relate to that story. That's a pretty straightforward phone call. Mm. But for the masses, for everyone else who's terrified of people like us or terrified of the media and journos, they would never think to pick up the phone. They go straight to the lawyers, to your point. Mm. Straight to the lawyers. Start this big fight that doesn't need to start, whereby... I think news editors and chiefs of staff are happy to be educated. Say, hey, guys, we're using the wrong file footage. No problem. We won't use it again. Mm. And that doesn't cost much compared to hiring lawyers. All right. So, uh, you guys, uh, Good Talent Media, is there a website that people should go to if they want to know more? Yeah, for sure. Uh, Goodtalent.com.au. And, Peter, um, I often get asked, well, why Good Talent? How did you come up with this name? And I did regret it for a little while because people were thinking we're a HR company. (laughs) (laughs) But, but, but as you know, the, the good uh, performers in the media or talent or interviewees, we call them good talent, right? You yeah. know, that's just an insider's term. So um, so we're just all about helping CEOs get their messages across, strengthen their brand, and help them become good talent in the media. Tony Nichols and David Latham from Good Talent Media, thanks for joining us on the program. Great, thank you so much, Peter. That's great. My Appreciate pleasure. It. Thank, thank you very much. Well, that was the show for this week. I hope you enjoyed uh, the insights into Paul Rickard in particular. You know, he is a mate of mine, so I'm quite happy to call him a boring prat at times, but his knowledge is fantastic, and what he achieved at Comsec should not be ignored, and that's exactly the reason why I interviewed him uh, on this program. I look forward to talking to you next week. See you then.